Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Oh, I have a feeling we've got a conversation in store for you folks today. We are sitting down uh, for a conversation that is in no small part triggered by Daniel Smith's new policy announcements. But we're going to go to some of the other areas other than where we've gone so far. Anybody who follows the show knows it's been a bit of a topic lately. But there's some background stuff that we're going to try to talk about as well. And joining us today to help us do that, I mean... You can't look at this guy's resume and not be like, this is the authoritative voice in Canada on LGBTQ2S plus youth. Um, so we're being joined today by Dr. Christopher Wells, who is an associate professor in the Department of Child and Youth Care, Faculty of Health and Community Services. He holds the Canadian Research Chair Tier 2. And I'm going to ask him what the other tiers are, because I'm super curious, uh, for the public understanding of sexual and gender minority youth. He serves as the founding director for the McEwen Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity. I could keep going because there's so many qualifications. So I'm going to jump past that and just say thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wells. Yeah, my pleasure to uh, to be with you. And I, th I think all of that means is I've just been around for uh, a long time. So uh, <laughs> I'm born and raised here in uh, Alberta and uh, Edmonton, care about my community, want to help build my community, want to help uh, create uh, safer and more inclusive communities. That's really what it's all about. What's what's tier two? So tier two means, uh, you know, a five year uh, research chair. Uh, these are all federally uh, appointed. Um, and uh, tier uh, tier one has a seven year appointment with uh, a little bit more money uh, to support uh, research. So uh, sort of just depends where you are at uh, the stage of your career as to which uh, tier uh, you might be eligible um, to uh, hold. Um, but uh, it's a real privilege to to hold one of these uh, research chairs, the first in the history of McEwen. Thankfully, uh, there are more, more to come. Uh, and I think it uh, is really my chair. It's really focused on exactly what we're doing here today is the public understanding. So how do we take research to help educate the public, to challenge misinformation, disinformation, and uh, to, at the end of the day, to engage in evidence-based practice, right? Practice that we know that is will work, that has its intended uh, impacts, and uh, in this case, actually um, helps young people rather than hurts them. So let's let's get into it. I mean, one of the things Daniel Smith appears to have at least tried to publicly brand these these policies around two major concepts now the first one she launched with the second one it appears she's trying to pivot to because it's kind of starting to be obvious that the first one isn't working but the 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 first branding point that she tried to use is well this is about parental choice this is about parental rights she since pivoted to we're trying to preserve children's choices but to use a star wars reference it appears that they're more trying to preserve children in carbonite than they are actually do anything for their ongoing development or growth but uh the, the the parental rights piece is is interesting so you know there have been many legal scholars who have stepped out and said yeah that's not a thing but there's this persistent history of parental rights and the perception of parental rights in alberta so i'm wondering if you could kind of do a, do a crash course where does this all come from what's the background explain the whole parental rights piece 
Yeah, you know, uh, parental rights is a very powerful frame. And, uh, you know, Danielle Smith and and conservative uh, governments have, we've seen in the United States and others have latched on to something that, you know, at first glance appears to strongly resonate with people, right? That this notion, and it, and it really, when we start to unpack it, it, it comes back to this belief that, you know, um, that parental rights are God-given, right? You have the child and therefore that child is, as it's like property rights, right? This, this child is your property. And we also, you know, think back to history when, you know, marriage was similar. Right. That when you you married um, a woman, right, that they were your property and you could do with them what you wanted. Right. So these, that was sort of the legal contract. Thankfully, we've evolved, hopefully, as a, as a society to understand. Right. That it's it's much more complex than that. Nobody has the right to own, abuse, discriminate, hurt someone else. People are not property and certainly children are not the property you know of uh, of their parents um so you know when we when we think about about this and and the flip side of that is always children's rights where do children's rights fit into this where does the un declaration of children's rights fit into that which is a, is a more right recent concept within the last 50 years to prevent the exploitation of children let's just go back to the industrial revolution here's here's your mistake of asking me a question as a, as a former social studies teacher um i i will as my students know i will just go on and on and on until the bell rings so to speak and then i'll pick it up when the class starts again but uh go back to the industrial revolution right where you had uh, there was no such thing as adolescence right once you were around the age 10 you were in factories and often as the these children had jobs because they were small and they were nimble right just think of the chimney sweeps uh, from you know the dickens novels and you know would crawl into factories and into machines and and things like that but we saw that you know there were these horrific abuses and 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 deaths and injuries because of that and so this concept of you know, children and children needing to go to school and, and be educated. And and we have this period of adolescence that develops, right? And and with that, we start to see children as having rights that are different than their their parents. But, you know, let, let's talk in Alberta's concept. So where we really begin to see this whole parental rights discourse start to evolve, we have to go back to Many people may remember this, 1978, and uh, a person by the name of Anita Bryant, Miss uh, Florida Orange Juice, um, who uh, launched in the United States from the, the Christian evangelical right. She became the face of this movement because much like Danielle Smith, you know, um, she was popular, she could say the right things, and she could deliver, right, a message uh, in a medium that many people would respond to. So Anita Bryant launched what was called the Save Our Children campaign, you know, and, and we're thinking in 1978, here we are almost a decade after Stonewall had happened in 1969. And, you know, with that Stonewall um, riots that happened in New York City, the gay and lesbian community started to become more visible. And as it become more visible and there was more understanding and more acceptance in society, but then there was also more a discussion about the need for human rights and protection from discrimination and being able, you know, in the workplace. And and so there was a much more visibility and advocacy. And the, the, the Christian far right was very concerned that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there is finding, you know, visible uh, gay and lesbian teachers or in, um, you know, um, government positions and their whole slogan of this save our children, right? You like this similar phrase? What are we hearing from Danielle Smith today, we need to save our children, right? 
from, um, you know, choices they may regret as adults. Wow, you know, certainly sounds very familiar. We're seeing these echoes of the past come into the to the present. Um, so their slogan was, gays can't reproduce, so they need to recruit, right? So, um, so therefore, since they can't reproduce, they need to re recruit, we start to hear this about you know, what was then being considered right? Well, they're pedophiles, right? They're preying on these vulnerable children to recruit them into this deviant, pathological, immoral, quote unquote, lifestyle, very similar to what we hear today, right? New words with groomer. Anybody who supports this as a groomer is uh, after children, you know, same, same, same crap, different pile, right? Fast forward 40, 40 years later, and the terms have changed, but the intent has not changed. And so, we're, you know, we're seeing this with these far right populist movements, this revival of this Christian evangelicalism uh, that is often really based in white supremacy. And so all, also because you can't reproduce, you're seen as a race traitor because you're not propagating the white race. Right. And so that's why gays and lesbians are naturally seen sort of as enemies. Right. You're not following the God-given procreation and the expansion, right, of the of the white race. So there's so many, there's so many intersecting issues that are here. But so Anita Bryant, and immediately what she does is she starts this campaign and uh in Miami-Dade County, where they had just recently passed a non-discrimination ordinance on the grounds of sexual orientation, um, you know, to say basically you can't be fired from your job for being gay. And she works uh much similar to what we're seeing now to get that um, legislation recalled and overturned. And she gets so much success in Dade County that she starts to take this as a roadshow all across the United States. And so fast forward and she comes and is brought by um, evangelical Christian groups into Canada. And one of her first stops, lo and behold, is here in Alberta. And perhaps no surprise because Alberta has traditionally been seen as the Bible Belt of Canada, right? If, if the prairies is the belt, someone once said Alberta's the buckle, right, uh, of that. Um, and so she comes here. And in fact, you know, um, this is, becomes one of the very first times in Edmonton or Alberta's history that uh, the LGBT community becomes visible and they fight back and they start to organize. So in 1978, they form what many other groups had done all over in North America is um, they, uh, number one, what they they often do is they start to boycott Florida Orange Juice, which is one of her sponsors. So all the gay bars across North America uh, pour orange juice out onto the streets. There's no more screwdrivers, right, which was popular at the time. Instead, they create the Anita Bryant cocktail, which is vodka and apple juice. I'm sure it's not meant to taste good because, you know, Anita Bryant wasn't good. But, um, you know, these were the small ways that uh, communities were fighting back. But they created the, what they called these the coalition to answer Anita Bryant, you know, and, and think about that. Even today, maybe we need to form the coalition to answer Danielle Smith, which I think we're already seeing happening with, you know, this organic uprising happening from different groups. Uh, from all walks of life and all professions across uh, Alberta. But what happens in Edmonton is the the labor groups, the unions, the faith groups, women's groups, gay and lesbian groups, they all come together and they protest her when she arrives. In fact, she did um, a, a, a sort of a, a musical prayer show at the 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 um, 
I think it was the 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 Coliseum, Northlands Coliseum in 1978. And some of the, the individuals chained themselves to the stage, right? Direct action protests, yelling, Anita, you've got me in chains the whole time while she was sort of singing uh, this conference. And so these groups, they marched down to City Hall. And in many ways, some might think this was Edmondson's first pride parade in 1978 because this collective group of individuals from across um, our community marched in protest against uh, Anita Bryant because they saw, you know, the harm of what she was trying to do. And so from 1978, flash forward to 1991, uh, Delwyn Vreen, an instructor, a lab instructor at King's College, gets fired from his job because um, they find out he's gay. And so um, he tries to go to the Alberta Human Rights Commission to file a complaint against discrimination. And they say, we can't take your complaint because sexual orientation is not included in Alberta's Human Rights Act. So what that means is it's legal to discriminate against someone who's gay, deny them service in a restaurant, deny them, you know, uh, rent an apartment, uh, fire them from their job without any recourse. So, um, and it's perhaps no surprising that Delwyn Green worked in a school, in a college, right? When we think back to who are they targeting as inappropriate role models, right? It's those who work in schools because they still operate under this belief that you can't say gay, right? Because it's so dangerous. It's such a contagion or a virus. The mere mention is going to turn kids gay, right? As though it was a choice or a lifestyle, which we know is completely untrue and has long been debunked. So Delwyn then has to turn to the community for support and the community helps to raise the funds for him to file you know, a lawsuit. And that lawsuit takes seven long years and we see through Alberta's judiciary, through the courts, some of the most homophobic comments from judges in Canadian jurisprudence, right? So that speaks to the culture and the climate at the time. But finally, in 1998 on April 2nd, um, always interesting timing, right? The day after April Fool's, the Supreme Court of Canada rules that um, the Alberta government must um, read sexual orientation into the Human Rights Act. And so we start to see big debates happen. Ralph Klein goes out and says and muses about using the notwithstanding clause, right, to exempt Alberta from being the only province or territory in the country to provide basic human rights protections on the grounds of sexual orientation. You know, and, and Michael Fair had just come in to be the first openly gay elected official in Alberta's history by being elected to city council, and he starts to face death threats, right? That this language, by simply saying they're going to use the notwithstanding clause, causes real world harm to individuals within the LGBT community. And we're actually seeing that happen again today with Premier Smith's policy announcements. But so finally, you know, after after sort of the weeks of deliberation, uh, Klein says, no, he's not gonna use the notwithstanding clause. In fact, he said, because of the visceral backlash uh, and, you know, the violence and discrimination that was happening and that from he saw from Albertans, that was one of the motivations for him not to use it because, you know, he knew that these protections were important. Um, but something starts to happen, right? We go, um, the government would, it doesn't write the words into the Alberta Human Rights Act, but the Supreme Court reads them in. So if you went to the act, you wouldn't even know that it was there. That's how stubborn the government was. So flash forward again, you know, 11 years later in 2009, 
the the government, the conservative government at the time, introduces Bill 44, which actually writes the word sexual orientation into Alberta's Human Rights Act. Finally, 11 years after the Supreme Court of Canada told them they had to include it, they write the words in, but not without an asterisk, right? Sort of not without a backhanded approach to inclusion. People like Ted Morton from the far right social conservative, they come up with a plan. And what their plan is to create a firewall to prevent right uh, schools from being able to talk about sexual orientation. So they introduced the first parental opt-out provisions in uh, Alberta's history. Uh, in the school system. And so they say, you know, anytime there's a planned or explicit lesson that deals with sexual orientation, sexuality, or religion, then parents need to be notified and to be able to opt their child out of any classroom discussion. So we can see how this now don't say gay legislation gets embedded in the school system. And so then we move forward again, right, around 2013 and 14, when we start to see the great GSA debate happen under the, the Prentice sort of uh, government when he comes in, right? This is an issue that had been percolating and then he's elected. And, um, you know, the issue here is with GSAs, right, that the government wanted to introduce legislation that said um, students would need parental permission to attend a GSA in a school, right? That's non-curricular, doesn't happen in a classroom, but is a safe and supportive environment within the schools. And we we spent, you know, um, a, a decade or more trying to support GSAs because we knew how important they were in the lives of young people and how hostile schools were for them, right? That these young people were trying to go to school and simply survive their school experience rather than a place where they, they could thrive and be themselves and find support. It's pretty hard to focus on your learning when you're just simply focused on right trying to survive each day, right? Your your hierarchy of needs takes over, right? It's survival first and, and learning comes somewhere down the line. And so we see lots of kids who are dropping out of school and being denied their education. They drop out, they tune out, they get pushed out because of how they identify. Um, and so it was about creating safe spaces and identifying, you know, those teacher allies to be able to support them, to have those trusted adults in their lives. Um, and so we saw, right, when Prentice tried to introduce this, this legislation, a massive backlash from Albertans. Students protested. Um, in fact, some would argue it was that issue and the handling of that issue that brought down, right, the conservative government. And you know, they did finally introduce Bill 10, which was a complete reversal that legislated the right for students to have a GSA. But uh, something else, you know, happened that that didn't get a lot of attention at the time. But what Prentice did, and, uh, you know, I met with Jim Prentice in a hotel room out of uh, the limelights. Um, I met with uh, Gordon Dirks to talk to them about the harm that this was happening. And at that time, I had met with Danielle Smith previously for for many years and introduced her to young people from this community because I knew that they needed to hear from these young people directly about the impact that the policies they were thinking of passing were going to have right on their lives. They could ignore me. As we know, they can ignore the research, but it's pretty hard to ignore a young person, you know, when you have to look them in the eyes and tell them you're going to discriminate against them and you're going to hurt them, right? That's a different you know, reality. And so those are the faces and the experiences we wanted them to remember. But what Bill 10 did is it actually removed 
the parental right to opt out of discussions based on sexual orientation. So it only left in human sexuality, uh, which is sexual health, education, and religion. Um, because Prentice, the government, knew it was patently discriminatory. And also, so now fast forward, not only is Danielle Smith re-adding that back in, she's adding gender identity uh, and gender expression at the same time, right, with it. So um, you, can, you can see the problems now. Not only is it not an opt-out, it's an opt-in every time, which totally changes the focus and makes it much harder, much more complex, and adds a lot of more red tape to the point that uh, it's going to be so difficult that it, it sends, again, a, a chill over these issues, again, that somehow talking about right gay, lesbian, bi, and trans issues is so dangerous that we have to protect children from it, right? Um, so you can see, you know, the the the... The, the, the chilling effect that this will have um, over the entire educational system, um, never mind, um, you know, the other pieces that she's at about approving materials now uh, for sexual health and approving guest speakers and, and all of those kinds of things. So, right, it's really changing the entire focus of our educational uh, system. So all of that to say, long story short, is Alberta has had a strong you know, connection to parental rights, and they've always been framed, you know, enemy number one has always been the gay, lesbian, bi, and trans community. Um, and so um, the question even today is, whose parental rights are we actually talking about? Because what gets lost in Smith's policies is, what about the parental rights of those parents who love and accept their LGBT children and want to do whatever it takes to keep them healthy and alive? What about their rights? And we've already heard from parents. We're saying if these policies pass, we're taking our family and we're moving out of Alberta because we will do anything to protect our young people and to get them into environments where they can be, um, where they can thrive and they can be themselves and they can find a community that will love and accept them. You know, and me as, a, as somebody born in, and raised in Alberta, um, that breaks my heart because I love and I care about this province deeply. People long time ago said to me, you know, well, why the hell would you stay in Alberta as a gay man, right? Why wouldn't you go to Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, which I call the MTV effect, going to Montreal, Toronto or Vancouver, right? Where you can, you know, you can you can find a community. You, you know, you don't have to worry about your safety walking down the street. But, you know, my response has always been if if we all leave, who's left to build and fight for this province that we believe in, right? Nobody should have to leave you know, their, their home because of who they are or who they love. I mean, there's so much to unpack in everything that you just said there, sir. Uh, I started with a blank piece of paper and two notes at the top and I filled the whole thing up as you were going. So I, I let's it's, here's the first question I want to ask. Why do you think it is that in Alberta, especially, cause we do this better than anyone else. Why do you think it is in Alberta? We tend to import the worst elements of American culture. Like the things that cause that country, the most division, the most distress. For some reason, this province looks at those things and go, ah, oh, you know, what would be great here. Let's do that. Why, why do you think we do that? Well, we have these these dominant stereotypes that have been, you know, part of our political and 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 culture for a long time. Of right, the three the three archetypes, you know, the roughneck, the cowboy, and and the oil executive, right? You know, then and that's how we see ourselves as Albertans. It's often been said, 
right, politically and culturally, Alberta doesn't look east or west. It looks south, right? It looks directly to Texas. And Texas has often been described, or Alberta has often been described as Texas of the north, right? You know, you can get a flight almost daily to Houston. Um, and, and it's that, it's sort of that, you know, that frontier, that sort of rugged masculinity that gets associated with these dominant stereotypes of Alberta. But, you know, the moment you actually scratch the surface and look at the reality of Alberta, we are or we are a young province. We are actually a progressive province and we are an extremely and growing diverse province. So even, you know, the facts of who is an Albertan today do not match onto these long held uh, stereotypes. So, you know, even with Danielle Smith and what she's trying to do is exactly look to what's happening in the, you know, in the Southern United States. And in many ways, she's trying to turn Alberta into Alabama, right? And and when we look into those provinces, the first and most convenient target is the LGBTQ plus community, right? And and it's a it's a it's it's a tactic of distraction, right? Attack and pick on the least understood, the most vulnerable to uh, keep people from focusing in on what are the real most pressing issues, like here in Alberta, healthcare, right? Who goes wants to go to an emergency room and wait 16 hours to be able to get treated? Um, you know, when we have doctors and nurses leaving this province or being able to, you know, afford your rent or put a meal on the table or deal with, you know, the fact that we're dealing with unprecedented climate change and forest fires and smoke and, and pollution that makes it almost impossible for some days for us to even go uh, outside. Never mind, you know, what we're dealing with in our winters where, you know, one day it's minus 50 and the next day, right, it's plus 10. Um, there are more pressing issues that, you know, we want the government to be focusing in on. And so, right, this is part of that wake up call for people. Hold your government accountable to the issues that matter the most. Don't fall for these tactics of shock and distraction. I mean, you talk about the healthcare piece and there's no question. We saw a, a story that came out last week uh, that talked about the fact that Calgary's down 20,000 health and social workers, which is like a town of people that's just left because things are going so great. Um, but, you know, I'm, one of the things that Daniel Smith dressed up these policies in the the silver lining that she she tried to, to paint around it was. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to attract a doctor, um, a highly specialized doctor. We're going to attract them to Alberta. And that doctor is going to be totally OK with us being entirely prescriptive over how they can practice because doctors love that. Um, and they're also going to be people who are able to divorce themselves of the moral implications of only beginning this, the, the care for transgender people after the age when the, you know, puberty's done and all of that. I mean, the, the whole argument to my understanding for, for puberty blockers is it presses pause so that there's less radical surgeries that are required down the road. And there's a lot of evidence to say that a lot of trans youth are able to recognize you know, oh, hey, this is, I'm different. Um, uh, how do you think that's going to go? Well, you know, uh, so much to just to, to unpack in, in all that, right? We know Danielle Smith is a masterful communicator and a masterful manipulator, right? And um, uh, she can all make it sound, right, great. And she can put this this so-called so sort of poison pill in there to say, oh, I'm going to create all this, you know, healthcare care uh, and these uh, this aftercare. We're going to bring in the specialists. 
But you know what? People have been asking for uh, improved access to healthcare, particularly for the trans and even the larger LGBT community for decades and decades for more funding. In fact, we've had medical specialists in this province who've wanted to set up shop and have got no support and they've left. They've gone to Toronto, they've gone to Montreal, where they don't have to fight through the politics, they can just get the resources to do the job that they need to do and want to do. So it is so completely disingenuous for Danielle Smith now to say she's going to be providing all of these supports when, you know, the community has been asking for these for years and years, as I have physicians and specialists who wanted to stay here in Alberta, but it was made practically impossible for them. In fact, they were forced out because there was such lack of, of support. Um, so in many ways, this is just, uh, you know, a red herring kind of argument. Look at the good we're, we're trying to do. We've listened to the community of what their needs are. But, you know, the last thing you want Danielle to have happen is for Danielle Smith to tell you how you should be transitioning to create this factory model. I can just imagine, right? It's like a, a Frankenstein kind of approach that will happen. Um, uh, you know, because the reality is no two people transition the same way, right? It's very individual and, and it, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and in fact, it it's, it's an incredibly lengthy, complex, time-consuming process because of all of the red tape and uh, specialists who were involved. In fact, that's always been a problem, right? Is, is the fact that there is not enough access. There are not enough supports. In fact, some people have left the province to be able to gain access to healthcare. Those who could, as adults, afford to pay for it themselves have gone to other countries um, to uh, to be able to, uh, you know, um, be able to, to to live as their true selves. That's how, right, how significant and serious it is that people would sp spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars um, because they can't, they couldn't wait for, for the, for the Alberta government to, to open up. All right. The supports that are necessary. Well, it's to me, it's, it's almost as if, you know, this is a province where people who work at abortion clinics continue to be targeted and harassed and when you take a look at the the extreme, extreme level of rhetoric that's being um, leveled towards anybody who dares to speak in any way, in, in any kind of allyship, um, let alone people who are actually, you know, directly impacted by by all of these uh, policies, um, you have to wonder what physician's going to go. Okay, so you're going to tell me exactly what I can't do, and I can't do my job based on medical evidence because I can't teach, treat kids under the age of X for whatever the things are. Um, oh, and I get to be a target of public harassment. I would love to do that job. Well, and it's even it's even going to have uh, implications far wider than that. In fact, right, what we're what these policies say to whether it, it's corporations or businesses is uh, Alberta is not good is not good for business because you know you you look at groups like you know Amazon or or tech companies and they hire for diversity right they want people who have different lived experience who think differently because that's what leads to innovation that's what leads to breakthroughs that's what leads to you know creativity so the moment you start to pass these very restrictive policies um you know it's going to cause businesses and corporations to think twice do we really want to set up shop 
in uh, Alberta, because what happens is we're having a hard enough time recruiting these folks uh, and these specialist positions or in the tech sector, um, and never mind about retaining them now, right? Think about all of these um, you know, people with this expertise and their families that are now thinking about leaving this province and leaving their jobs because, um, you know, of this culture and this environment that these policies uh, have created. Right. That's many people are saying that's not the Alberta I want to live in. Yeah. And people, you know, those who have a choice can get out or choose not to come. But you worry about those people that don't have that same privilege and that same opportunity you know, again, to get up and leave. And, you know, that would be the last thing that we should be thinking about, right, is um, is is forcing somebody to want to leave, you know, the place that they love. It's been stunning since we started having these conversations on the, on the show since Danielle Smith, even when she announced it on her radio show, um, the, the number of people who have said, I'm leaving. Um, I'm leaving because, you know, some people have said, I have to make sure that my kid gets the care that they need. Uh, some people have said, I'm leaving because I can't risk raising my kids in an education system like this. And some people have said, I just don't want to be in a province that is this openly, governmentally homophobic uh, and transphobic and all like prefix phobic. Um but I want to talk a little bit about Daniel Smith because you mentioned in your 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 opening presentation that uh, the Daniel Smith you you had met with her in her her previous iteration, and I'm curious if if you'd be willing if you could talk a little bit about what did you see from Daniel Smith in the 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 2012 ish era or when you started interacting with her and. How much of a disconnect do you perceive between who Daniel Smith has presented herself to be and the Daniel Smith that stood in front of the the painting and with um, Anya playing in the background and a very soft voice said, "We're coming." Um, how do you? Is it the same thing? Is it different? What's your take? I think there's a massive disconnect. The Danielle Smith that I knew, right? Even as a, a never mind 2012, but as a as a as a talk show host uh, her show I was on several times is not the Danielle Smith who appears before us today. In fact, that was a Danielle Smith who wanted to meet with these young people, wanted to hear firsthand about their experiences. And I believe she was visibly moved and changed. We've heard her say so on the public record, stand up in the Alberta legislature uh, in support of protecting these LGBTQ young people. So what has changed? You know, uh, you know, with that, and even as she uh, became uh, elected as premier, I she created opportunity for me to meet her chief of staff and her new. They like to talk about this new LGBTQ coordinator position that they are the first government in Alberta's history to create. Met with them and was reassured that Danielle Smith had no interest in introducing any of these policies because we were aware of what was happening in the United States, right? We're aware that Alberta looks south. It doesn't look at what's happening east or west. And so there was a lot of uncertainty about what Danielle Smith's new government would mean. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's why you're seeing such a visceral backlash to this announcement because she lied to all of us to our faces, 
the government lied to us. Um, it was so disingenuous because we were told that, you know, I have a non-binary family member, right? And even her messaging was, okay, well, let's just wait a little bit. Let's slow this down. Let's be respectful here. Um, our Alberta wants to include everyone, um, you know, and so you really begin to start to understand that Danielle Smith is, in fact, you know, might be best called a puppet premier because she's no longer the one, you know, calling the shots. It is the David Parker cult that is pulling the string. So here we have a far right extremist faction that is in some ways hijacked the UCP party uh, and is dictating now to the premier what she will do upon or what she won't do upon pain of their attack right and they are brazen in their threats and of course they're not just stopping with with these announcements we know already well documented that they're coming after the school boards right and they plan to use the same strategy to get candidates and to get the votes to stack the deck to take school boards over and it's no surprise this is a play right out of the far right again i remember one you know um one Christian evangelical white supremacist who said uh, in the United States, who said, uh, was asked a question, if you could be the president of the United States or something else, what would you choose? And he says, he said, oh, no, no, I would not want to be the president of the United States. I would rather have control of every school board in the United States. That is where the real power lies, because schools are at the heart of our communities. Right. And if you want to control the future, the first thing you go and do is control what's taught or talked about in schools. Right. This is a page right out of any fascist government. Look at what's happening in Russia, right, where they have the anti-gay propaganda laws. You can't even say the words gay, lesbian, bisexual or trans or you'd be immediately arrested and put into jail. So they go to control curriculum. Then they go to, you know, to control the textbooks and the public libraries. Um, and this is about, right, controlling and producing a very certain kind of subjectivity or citizen, right? And, and you conveniently use the most vulnerable as your scapegoats. So yeah, none of this is, is a real surprise. What's, what is a surprise is how Danielle Smith has changed. You know, where is the real Danielle Smith in all of this? I mean, it's 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 fascinating when you were when you were speaking at the beginning and you were talking about the history of of, of white supremacy and um, extreme right religious views. I was immediately thinking, you know, it's funny because, you know, David Parker describes himself as having a messianic complex and he's tweeted on multiple occasions how proud he is of, of being white. And I think that if you're saying that you're that's that's like there's another way to say that. I think it might be might be white pride. I'm not sure. Uh, but I feel like that might be another, you know, you're just changing a couple of the the factors. Um, but it's it's and he's also very, very good at at, at having his um I'm going to use a word that's probably going to get me into trouble, but token characters that uh, he'll say, oh, I can't be racist. Look, I've got this guy. And it's like the one guy who agrees with everything he said mindlessly. So I'm not sure that that really means that you're connected to that community. But is it, um, is it, is it David Parker or David Koresh? Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. This is um, what happens. Right. Truth and logic uh, do not matter. Right. It's you follow. Right. Those who have been given 
ordained by God or, or else, right? Or else you suffer the consequences. The law doesn't matter. The rule of law doesn't matter. Um, there's only one person that matters, right? And, you know, similarly, when we, we hear from Danielle Smith, we see the same tropes, right? I have a non-binary family member. Therefore, I can't be transphobic. I can't be, you know, introducing discriminatory policies. Um, same with who she talks about, right? Now she's changed her tune to recognize, because everybody has seen through this, that none of these policies are based in any evidence. Um, she hasn't talked to any professional or medical or health or educational expert or or legitimate organization. She just relied on the voices of a few um, heavily traumatized individuals, as she would say, with lived experience to make these policies. And, and what she's trying to do is 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 create a wedge. She likes to say even today on her premier uh, radio Saturday radio show that, well, you know, there there is not consensus in the medical community right around this. In fact, that is a bald faced lie. There is absolute medical consensus. There are well established international guidelines that have been put together by you know, scientific and medical experts from all over the world. They've been peer reviewed. In fact, they're on their eighth iteration. They're over 200 pages in length called the World Professional Association of Transgender uh, Health and the standards of care, the literal standards that set out the expectations for medical and psychological professionals. And you violate those standards, you violate your ethical and professional responsibilities. Um, so it's a bit like, uh, you know, climate change deniers, right? You'll always find the 1% and even the 1% who may have some credentials, but we don't listen to the 1% when there is a 99%, right, consensus. That's this false balance in trying to sow division and to sow doubt when she says this, right? Um, and as well, we know you don't make public policy based on... Um, anecdotal in, uh, experience or the experiences of a handful of individuals. And I feel very sorry for these individuals who are being used and exploited. Their personal trauma is being exploited as a policy prop, right? How low do you have to go as a politician to exploit the most vulnerable for your own political means and ends? Well, you know, I find, and I, I don't want to speculate too heavily on on the the personal relationships that exist in daniel smith's life but the you know one of the people that i have found myself thinking about in the abstract obviously but uh is whoever that non-binary family member of, of daniel smith says because i mean first of all i haven't seen an endorsement from them maybe i've missed it and i'm not saying that they should be trotted out into the the public circle if that's not something that they're prepared for because that's absolutely not appropriate on so many levels but i can't imagine being somebody who is non-binary and having you know a family member who on one hand says oh i love you and i support you and then simultaneously invalidating your existence like that just is heartbreaking to me it's just gaslighting and that's what we're seeing the the premier you know uh, do here and and what you what happens when you do that is you identify yourself as you're not the safe person i thought you were perhaps right that you know maybe when i need support i'm gonna now have doubt to be able to reach out to somebody whether it's within my your family or someone at school in your environment or you know um 
we, we always hope that there are many trusted adults in the lives of a young person. And that could be a faith leader, that could be a coach, that could be a teacher. We hope, always hope it's a parent, but you know, it's the young person who decides who that is, right? Um, and so, you know, it becomes really important about the language we use and we're careful in what we're saying and we're creating, you know, spaces that open up conversation and possibility rather than closing them down, um, you know? And, and again, these young people, they are the ones who know their identity the best, right? And it's our job as the adults around them to help to support them, right? And help to to guide them and help to nurture them and help to protect them. It's not our job to right impose identities um, up upon them, but you know to be in this space of of being open and non judgmental and ensuring that you know if they don't have good information how do we expect them to make good decisions about their lives right to equip them with the knowledge and the tools um to 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 be able to make those informed decisions that's what the job of any parent or or adult around a young person should be yeah the supportive piece is is, is so critical i've been also going back to i grew up in northern alberta and the 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 minister in the church that I went to when I was a kid was this huge, massive Irish dude. And he was, a, when he got going, he could get about as far as brimstone as you could get. But one of the other things that he was, was endlessly compassionate. And when one of his um, congregation, who was a young lady in, in this Northern Alberta town in the 80s, so... If you've if you've been around for a little while, that that should paint plenty of picture for you. But uh, she she found herself pregnant, and she was going to head down to Grand Prairie in order to to get an abortion. Um, and she presented him with this, and this man who's a fire and brimstone man of the cloth kind of thing. His immediate reaction was, "I'm coming with you. You shouldn't have to do this alone." And that's I think when you put compassion and kindness ahead of your own um bullshit uh that's where humanity lives and i would argue you know we had pam rocker on the show a little while ago and there's another fine example of how just because you have uh, a faith or religious beliefs doesn't mean you have to be a dick you can be a good person and still be supportive of people who need support um i'm curious you know Given everything that you've you've said about your your previous relationship and your previous interactions with Daniel Smith, you've been on her show, you've had policy discussions with her, uh, even very very recently. How much of this do you think is uh, Daniel Smith was putting on uh, a performance for the last twenty years, uh, and how much of this do you think is somebody's got a, a, a metaphorical political gun to her head? And she simply lacks the strength of character to say, yeah, you can pull that trigger, but I'm not letting you. If you want to come for the kids, you've got to go through me. I'm not going to be a, a tool to allow you to do that. What, how much, where's the balance there, do you think? I, th I think exactly what you, you've said. She's afraid, right? And afraid of um, what we can conclude is uh, David Parker and his cult followers um, and the threats that they've made, right? Rather than standing on your your moral or your principled or your ethical ground to say, you know, that I will not pass policies that I are known to hurt vulnerable young people, right? Like if you're going to draw a line in the sand, to me, that's the line every time, 
right? That you draw, right? Is support and protect the most vulnerable. There's so many other important things that she could be focusing time and, and energy on. And, um, you know, regardless of what happens, we know that this is going to, these protests are going to continue. We know that this is going to be met within legal challenges and things are going to be like brained, could be tied up in the courts for years and years. And it's going to cost taxpayers tens of millions of dollars to defend these discriminatory policies that could be better used. Right in in other parts of our society, never mind the emotional toll that this will take uh, on the uh, LGBTQ and allied community to defend their basic human rights, to defend the basic right to exist, to defend uh, you know your belief in this province as a place where you want to live and raise a family and contribute. So you know what I I think is really missing in all of of this discussion from our. Our, our premier and and others is coming back to empathy, right? You know, being able to, you know, and not this fake empathy, that this fake empathy that I know best what you need and that you're not competent. This, this you know, this crisis of compassion that she's she's cared, right? She's, she's painting herself in this almost Mother Teresa-like kind of way, Right. That, um, you know, you you you're too young to know really who you are. Um, um, you know, Mother Teresa also had a very, a very, uh, you know, famous phrase. And, and I would say this to the same phrase to Danielle Smith. Mother Teresa said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. And that's what we really need to get back to here. Right. Is love, empathy and the celebration of diversity and difference as Alberta's greatest strength. You know, our, our strength as a province is not in our economy, it's not in our resources, it's in our people, right? And our the diversity of our people that makes Alberta such a great place to be, right? Like I, I truly fundamentally believe Alberta is the best place to be in the world. And that's why we're not gonna leave it, but we're gonna stay here and fight like hell to keep it. You know, you, the the diversity piece, I think, is so, so, so important. And it still blows my mind that Daniel Smith sh shared a stage with somebody who was like, you know, they say diversity of our strength, but it, they never say how. And I mean, it's it's really simple. If you're one person with one perspective and you're looking at an object, you're only looking at one side of the object. And the more diversity of views that you bring, the the more accurate a picture of what's going on to say nothing of the the creative solutions like I, I go one of the examples that I always like to use because it's easy uh, and I'm I'm kind of lazy is the the example of Sikh Gurdwaras uh, or the Sikh temples or Sikh if you say it like white people. Um, I've been corrected. So I say Sikh now, um, but they have most of them have kitchens in the basement where anybody can go and get a hot meal, regardless of what their faith is. And they're largely run by the elders of that community. And there's so much that that addresses. There's so much beauty in that. And I'd never heard of it until I started to really interact to some degree with the members of the Sikh community. And I was just like, why are we all doing this? This is brilliant. And if you didn't have that diversity, you'd never even have that idea presented to you. So to Tucker Carlson, you're an idiot. Um, one of the oh. other things that <laughs> all, all you really need to do is, is look outside your window, right? When you yeah. look outside your window, right, you see uh, a natural world and environment that is our greatest teacher, right? When 
you know, uh, when a system in nature reaches sameness, it dies and collapses because it can no longer adapt, right? Diversity is built into the survival of our planet and we ignore it at our own peril, right? The lessons are there. A diverse system is a resilient system, is an adaptable system, right? We should be looking to bring diversity into every opportunity we can, every classroom, every family, every environment. Uh, because fundamentally, as a young person, when you have that early experience with difference and diversity, you learn not to be afraid of it. And what happens is you attack what you don't know or what you fear. And again, that's why, you know, you want to, you know, control the future. You control schools and you limit the exposure to diversity. I'm curious. I know. And I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question in a sec, because I know you had a meeting with Tanya Fur. But one of the things that's been really striking throughout this whole process is not just the the silence since the the video, the infomercial. Uh, I like to call it a timeshare commercial because it had that vibe. Um, uh, I'm not buying what she's selling, though. Nor am I. You, for you, the you record. Can, you can offer up the free weekend in the small black and white TV, but I'm still not buying. Uh, I, I don't want that condo on the lake of fire. You know, as much as she's trying to make it appealing, that's oh, not the kind of timeshare I want. There's, there, oh, I'm I'm using that going forward. Um, but uh, this this the response from caucus and particularly cabinet has been, let's go with absent. There hasn't been anyone condemning it, but there hasn't really been. Uh, a whole lot of cabinet members endorsing it. And in fact, as uh, Dr. Brad pointed out very astutely, the the answer that Dale Nally gave the day before that was then edited out of the press conference until some people said, wait, what? Um, the, the answer that he gave was, we haven't talked about it in cabinet, so I really don't know. And that's pretty alarming when you have a premier rolling out a suite of policies like this um without having talked to cabinet because you know democracy and stuff i think they have a a term to describe when one person makes all of the decisions but i'm curious what uh what what was the the interaction like with tanya fur did she say oh yeah no we've talked about it in cabinet we're all on board with this or how did how did that go yeah, well, besides them trying to stack the consultation with, uh, you know, uh, individuals from Calgary and the Edmondson consultation and the exact people who um, the premier uh, said that that she had talked with, I'm always, well, you know, if they were already consulted, why are they at another con consultation with other members? And they're there exactly to try to undercut what uh, the LGBTQ plus community and experts are actually sharing, right? They did their best uh, attempt to do that. It didn't work because we knew we knew what was actually happening there. And again, how they were being used as political props and to say, oh, well, we even in the, the consultations, the community was divided. You're going to hear that again and again and again, which is, again, a false lie. And, and it became very clear uh, that the minister, same as Dale McNally, had not been consulted. In fact, you know, I asked her, um, you know, directly, she said, as the minister who has the LGBTQ portfolio for this government, if she would stand behind these policies, she tried to evade and finally, you know, uh, kept asking the same question and, and demanding an answer. And she said yes. 
And then, you know, I asked her directly, well, then would she resign knowing that the harm that these policies would inflict? Right. And and she said, no, you know, she would not resign because we know, right, if a cabinet minister cannot, you know, hold the party line, then they must resign right from the cabinet. Um, but it's clear that, again, you know, for a, a government, you know, uh, the used to be government that said previously Jason Kenney did not consult uh, enough with ministers and with the grassroots. Um, well, you know, here Danielle Smith is doing exactly the same thing, creating policy without any consultation from her or input from her own ministers, uh, from uh, any experts. But it appears just to be one person, um, you know, a David Parker, uh, and then, you know, the lived experience of a handful of very vulnerable, traumatized uh, individuals. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's clear who's who is driving, you know, this bus. Uh, uh, it's certainly not caucus. It's certainly not the government. Um, uh, it's Danielle Smith uh, at the front of it behind the steering wheel. I'm curious. And I think this is something that's important to highlight. You can tell me if I'm I'm wrong because I very well could be. But it seems to me that if you're going to consult with individuals, one of the things that's important, especially when you're talking about uh, issues as complex and, and nuanced as as this issue, it would seem to me that one of the things that would be important to do is to make sure that you're talking to people who are not coming from a place of profound, profound trauma informed bias. Uh, that almost seems to me to be irresponsible and particularly to hold those people up to the spotlight and go, hey, you're dealing with a lot. How would you like some more scrutiny? That that seems to me to be a particularly craven way of of doing doing consultation. Am I reading that wrong? It's it's unconscionable is really what it is. You know, when you're 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 re-victimizing the victimized, you know, in 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 a very real kind of sense. And you know what is the the saddest about this is is oftentimes you know we're we're seeing people being propped up, uh, you know, as evidence of this policy, who are still struggling and dealing with their own internalized homophobia and transphobia, and and lashing out at others. Look, you know, it took me a long time personally to understand, you know, trans issues. You know, when I came out, uh, you know, in the in the 90s, I wanted to be a straight gay, right? Because, you know, if I was going to be Alberta, I had to be, you know, I, I might be gay, but I had to be hyper masculine. I didn't want anything to do with effeminacy or trans issues that was like you know that was beyond my world that was offensive to me but you know when i when i became part of the community i got to know people and i got to hear their individual stories and their life experiences right it changed me right i understood that you know they were no different than me in fact you know that they weren't the problem i was the problem Right. These ingrained attitudes and values that, you know, were all around me during my upbringing, so much so I didn't even know, right, that they were there. That's how dominant and invisible they were. I had to begin to question, you know, almost everything that I believed in and that I was raised to believe in as a kid from uh, Alberta. And and in many ways, you know, I, I started my career as a classroom teacher and and had, you know, the opportunity to work alongside uh, LGBTQ young people you know, even before the Vereen decision became became law. And I couldn't be out as a classroom teacher because I'd be fired from my job, right? But it was these young people in the community 
they were the ones, right, who educated me and held me accountable and responsible. They said, you're a teacher, you do something to make schools better for us. And that's actually what led me back to university is I needed a lens and a language to understand what was going on in schools and in our society to help to be able to name the conditions of oppression if I had any hope of changing them, of creating you know, a safer community and environment. And so to this day, I, I even call myself an accidental professor because I never had any intention to be a professor. And, you know, I barely graduated high school, um, you know, um, but I had a passion and I had these kids holding me responsible and accountable. Every week I went back, they'd say, what did you do this week to make things better for us? Right. That's the accountability of your stakeholders that you need to answer to. And it was listening to them and and their experiences that led us to drive, you know, change through research and through policy. And, you know, I always sort of said said to them, one of you is worth 10 of me. You know, if you're organized and articulate, you have power, you have strength, you know, because, you know, all of us, we grew up thinking, right, we were disposable. Right, in, in this province. And, and that's what angers me so much with Daniel Smith's announcement. Here we go again, you know, and we know without a doubt that those policies will lead to young people taking their own lives. Right. I've worked with many of these young people. And in fact, you know, the greatest frustration and, and what I what I carry with me are the are the faces of those we couldn't help and we couldn't save. Right. And I still carry in my office photographs of those kids that we've lost to remind me about what's at stake here. Right. And when I'm about to go into a difficult meeting or have a hard conversation, right, I look into those faces and I'm reminded, you know, that it's just never me. It's just never any of us. We're doing it for the thousands of people behind us. Those we've lost, those are who are still fighting to be here and and those we're trying to make a better future for. That's what's at stake here, right? And that's why, you know, we're we're angry, but we don't use that anger, right, to debilitate us. We use it to fuel us, right? To turn that anger into, you know, uh, a passion, right? To fuel that rage into something, you know, productive, right? Because at the end of the day, right, we're gonna get the communities that we're willing to build. And that means each and every one of us need to stand up, speak out and become active, even if it's just in your own circle around your dinner table. Right. It's a, our responsibility to educate ourselves. It's no one else's responsibility. You know, pick up that book, turn on Netflix, watch Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I can guarantee you, you will find something in there because every time, even now I watch that show, I end up crying by the by the end of it. I'm like, oh, damn it. They got me again. Right. Because, you know, you see the humanity, you see the empathy, you see that there's nothing to be afraid of here. Right. Your fear is within and it's this government that is preying on that fear and sowing that fear and this division, right? We can take that power back and we take that power back. And as we started this conversation by looking back to history, you know, it's history that taught us, right? Some of the greatest single act any of us can do in the LGBTQ community is to come out, is to be visible, right? When it's safe to do so, because then you're no longer a stereotype. You're a real person, you're a family member, you're a loved one, 
you're a colleague, right? You're a caucus member. Um, you know, that's what change where real change will will come, right? We need to talk about why this is wrong, why this isn't acceptable, and why this is not part of the Alberta that we believe in. I want to extend what you just said there, if I can, um, to things that allies can do as well. Because, I mean, you want to talk about cliches and stereotypes. I'm a middle-aged, cis, straight, white guy who likes punk rock and has tattoos. Um, so I, 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 I get a couple of those, uh, those, those cliche stereotypes. I have no illusions about that. But, you know, before we started the interview proper, we had a conversation about the importance of allyship and the importance of demonstrating outwardly visibly allyship because you know one of the things that you do when you point out that you're an ally is you make it really really easy to identify the bigots um so what would you say to all of the allies who, who aren't members of the lgbtq2s plus community uh who are like oh fuck what do i do now don't be a bystander you know now is the time we need you right allies don't back down they double down right when the community needs you the most that's real authentic allyship right educate yourself um you know as as we said your your podcast is a great start you've got wonderful episodes you've been tracking this you know for some time now um there are there are uh you know find those accounts on social media that aren't full of misinformation and disinformation right it's, it can be as simple as starting with a book watching a show Right. That's part of why we're seeing this this backlash to 2S LGBTQ communities is the more visible right you become and the more you become a part of this, quote unquote, mainstream culture, um, you know, people begin to uh, attack that. Right. And because they're afraid, afraid of that. And so we see like throughout these suites of policies, they just don't attack or discriminate against trans individuals, but. Um, you know, the whole goal is to silence and erase LGBTQ people from public life. And you hear a lot of that in those stereotypes. Well, I have nothing against you, but don't put it in my face, right? Like, you know, what you do in your bedroom as though your identity is only a sexual act. And I and I can tell you there are a lot of uh, heterosexual people that are engaged in so-called same-sex sexual behaviors, um, right? Uh, human sexuality is incredibly diverse and 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 complex and wonderful in all of its different uh, facets, um, right? So you know that's that's a that's a big part of it, right? Is educating yourself, standing alongside you know individuals from the community, and you know right now really what we need to see the most. We've seen the professional associations and bodies begin to speak out. We've seen family members begin to share their their personal lived experiences you know we're now hearing from young people who've been marching protests out of their schools about the impact these policies will have uh, we need to hear from the corporations and the companies and the business community because perhaps that's going to be the one of the the only things that danielle smith will will uh, listen to is when corporations begin to say you know this is not only um, bad policy, it's bad for business. And in fact, you know, we've seen it happen in the United States, where now where companies will boycott coming to particular states because of these discriminatory policies. We're not going to hold our convention there. 
We're not going to hold right the Super Bowl there. We're not going to hold right the NHL All Star Game, you know there. Uh, and you know, uh, banks have often been one of the first to support our LGBT community. And again, you know, now is the time they need to stand behind our LGBTQ community, right? Because they have tremendous power and tremendous influence uh, in our society. And so we need to keep saying the message that this is not part of the Alberta we want or the Alberta we believe in and say that, you know, these are the voices of a few angry, small minority. These are not the voices or the wishes of the majority uh, of our province. So people need to rise up. They need to speak out. And that doesn't mean speaking for the community or getting in front of the community. It means creating opportunity for the community to be heard. And particularly our trans and two-spirit voices that have long been the most silenced and marginalized within our community. Those are the voices that we need to be centering the most and of course, because Daniel Smith is not consulted with the young people who are going to be the most impacted by these policies. Those are the voices we need to listen to the closest and the voices that we need to amplify the most. I have two more questions for you um, or two more topics. I always say that and then I have like six after. So I'm going to apologize in advance because God knows I'm probably going to do that anyways. But um, if you could speak directly to Daniel Smith, what was it you would say to her right now? Stop. Stop the harm. You know, you know better than this. You know, it would be like, explain to me why why you're doing this. This is not the Danielle Smith so many of us uh, know, right? We, we might have agreed, you know, philosophically. We might have agreed politically. But we agreed on common humanity. And that seems to have been what's lost the most here, right? You know, the 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 evidence is clear. We've we've seen this global wave of populism, uh, you know, and far right extremism sweep across the world. And you know, many of people thought, well, you know, that is happening somewhere else. That'll never happen here in Canada, right? Canada, the country of democracy and diversities and multiculturalism's best hope in the world, right? If Canada falls, God help the rest of the world, um, you know, and and here we're seeing it in Alberta. And that's why I think, you know, quite remarkably, um, you know, you saw the Yukon government call out Alberta, right? Little old Yukon, right? Uh, doesn't surprise me because you know what? Yukon has had a long history of this quote unquote rugged individualism from the time of the gold rush, right? People who didn't fit in, to society, they came north, right, to to find a new future, right? And it was, you know, wasn't a battle against each other. It was a battle against the land and these harsh conditions and the environment. And you valued somebody by what they could contribute, not by what, you know, who you perceive them to be, right? And so Yukoners have always had this really unique, interesting culture and this acceptance of you know diversity and and difference and so you know there's something that we can learn there uh, as well particularly with alberta that was on the path uh, of the gold rush all those years ago um but we need more governments across canada right we're, we're sort of seeing the fact that conservative governments in canada are no longer conservative right they're only conservative in in name in name they're really far right 
populist governments in conservative clothing now, right? We've lost the great sort of conservative governments. You know, I, I even think back to the time of Ralph Klein and and where ministers had real power, right? And authority. And I remember when, um, you know, Dave Hancock was the minister of children's services, right? And, um, you know, who's, who did become the premier of Alberta for a short time and has since retired and become a uh, a, a judge, uh, I think a family court judge, um, he used to give out these pins that uh, to everybody who worked in his ministry of children's services, and they said children first. And it was a reminder that every policy decision that is made by this government needs to put children first. And that was the conservative legacy, right? Where is that today? Because Danielle Smith seems to be putting children last, not first. What would you say to the people who are, I mean, Daniel Smith has has put the goalposts way, like it's not just, it's not even on the same field anymore. It's like four or five fields down um, because these policies are allegedly not going to be introduced until the fall session, which means we're looking at the end of October at the earliest, most likely in November. Um, that's that's a long time to to sustain protest. And I mean, we are heading into to pride season in a lot of ways, and I can only imagine the applications are going to look very different this year. Um, but what would you say to people who are like, oh, that's a long time. How, how did, what would you what would you say to them to help them sustain what needs to be sustained in order for the opportunity to maybe get Smith to blink? Well, I can I can tell you and assure you not one UCP member will be welcome at any pride celebration across this province. Um, you know, you can't attack the community and then say you support the community and show up at pride. Right. And over the years, there have been a lot of debates within our community about having conservative politicians there and our uh, many members in our community have given them the benefit of the doubt. Right to show up and we need to keep these relationships open, myself included, right? That, uh, you know, uh, we need to try to help educate, right? But Danielle Smith has burned the bridge beyond repair in that sense, right? Not until these policies are rescinded and not until the harm that has been caused is healed, right? And that it will take significant work. So you're right, we have pride season coming up in March, not in a month's time from now, we have a whole slew of university pride celebrations coming. And then in June, we have Pride Month. In, in, uh, it's actually the summer of Pride in, in Edmonton. We'll have all kinds of events. And those are, are important because those are the spaces that will nourish us, right? And those are some of the spaces where we need our allies to show up and support us, right? Together to show that we're not going away. We're not going to be rendered silent and invisible. You can pass all of the policies that you want and you will be met with a fight at each and every turn because this isn't just a fight about policies this is very much a fight about you know our lives and a fight for our right to exist so we're going nowhere and in fact all this does is it it buys time to mobilize it buys time to strategize it by it buys time to grow the chorus right you know, sometimes we say, well, we're just preaching to the cor chorus, the same people all of the time, right? And that's important because we have to solidify, we have to strengthen those voices. 
But now more than ever, we have to add to the chorus. We have to add new voices, right? And make the chorus sing louder because, right, this is a song of freedom. This is a song of justice. This is a song of liberation. This is a song about the future that we believe in. I have one more thing I want to say, and then I'm going to let you say open open mic, whatever you want. Um, I, I, I got to say, I had never up until today heard the term straight gay before you like <laughs> i'm sure the expression on my face when you said that was something because i was like wait what um but you know I, I, it I, from a greater point i think it really does underscore that you know toxic masculinity is bullshit and it doesn't matter if you're straight or gay or trans or whatever toxic masculinity is still toxic so you know the, the old saying goes that the more insecure you are in your masculinity the more you have to defend it Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, if, if you're comfortable with who you are and somebody, you know, another man says, hey, you know, you, you're looking good. You're an attractive guy. You're just like, oh, hey, thanks. You know, I, I guess I did something right today instead of right. Calling them a fag or punching them in the face. Right. So it's this really right. It's this it's this really interesting, you know, paradox in, in many kind of ways. Like, yeah, if you're secure and you're comfortable, then yeah, it doesn't matter. Just accept, accept the compliment, right? And uh, and move on. Uh, it's those who are not secure that where we actually see, right, what's, uh, you know, classically been called the gay panic, right? And the gay panic defense. And we see this, you know, this is this is the the the, the issue here, right? When we look at hate crimes that are happening across this country being, you know, rising, we see the three most targeted groups for hate crimes are the black community. So you see the effects of racism, the Jewish community, the effects of anti-Semitism, and then the LGBTQ community, the effects of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. But of all the hate crimes committed, right, in Canada, the ones targeting the LGBT community are the most violent in nature, right? It's not one stab wound, it's 40 stab wounds. Because, you know, it's it's just not about right attacking this individual it's about destroying their existence right they're not even seen as as human beings they're seen as objects and that is what's so dangerous about danielle smith's policies and this rhetoric we're seeing it enables a poli uh, you know a situation um of dehumanization right what we might call um, you know, her words are part of this symbolic violence that now creates open season on the LGBT community. And we're already seeing it. You know, I, 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 you know, look at just, I have to just look at my own email, right? I have to look at the calls of people who are phoning my university to have me fired from my job, right? I don't even answer my phone. I didn't ever do an interview in my own home, right? Once upon a time, a police officer told me that I should get a concealed carry permit, right? Because of the level of threats that you face when you speak out. And that's fine, right? I have tremendous privilege as a white cisgender male. Um, parts of my identity privilege me, parts of my identity subjugate me, right? As a gay male. Um, so I can walk through the world quite differently than most people. But, you know, uh, with that with that privilege comes responsibility at the same time, which is I'm an academic, I have academic freedom, thankfully, because I can't get fired from my job. But the moment other people speak out, and I I, I know this of, of my uh, colleagues in other professions who are speaking out right now, people are um, doxing them at work, 
right? They are harassing them. They are stalking them. In fact, the police have had to be involved in cases um, where they're being harassed to such an extent where they're trying to be silenced. You know what? You know, at the end of the day, we know what happened to Harvey Milk, right? One of our great leaders of our community was who was killed and assassinated by one of his colleagues, right? Um, you know, and 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 Harvey had the famous phrase that, it, you know, if a bullet should enter my brain, I hope it would shatter every closet door, right, in, in the world. Because once we all come out, right, and we're all visible, right, no one would ever be able to discriminate against us again. You know, in the same way, right? You can, you can, you can kill me, but you can't kill a movement, right? That that's we are just there representing the thousands of people behind us because you know we have the privilege, and you know, oftentimes we have the protection to be able to do so. But it's not at all without consequences. This is why, back to your question for the community, why these these spaces of pride become so important because we've got to take care of ourselves we've got to nurture ourselves we've got to protect our ourselves right um, because you know if we don't support ourselves what we've seen elsewhere is we're not going to get that support so again as allies check in on you know your loved ones check in on your friends from the lgbt community you know just show them that you care and that you're there for them because that means a lot right to know that you don't have to go through this fight to just to exist in this world to exist in this province to be able to have equal rights in this province to know that you're not alone in that fight because you know what happens is people internalize that right it turns into this self-loathing and this self-hating that so many of us have had to overcome of our upbringing right it's very interesting people say well why do you have pride well, because we grew up with a legacy of shame, right? And so pride is our way to say we no longer accept that, right? We celebrate that, that we are worthy of love. We are worthy of acceptance. As my, my friend Pam Rocker would say, right? You are enough. You are worthy. You are loved, right? And that's the message, you know, that I say to every young person I encounter, I give them one message, and it is, you are normal and beautiful just the way you are. You don't need to change. It's society that needs to change. Anything else you want? I mean, that was that was powerful stuff. Anything else you want to add on top of that? You know, I just say, you know, that's a message to youth. I, I have a, a message for parents too who might be what might be listening and not understanding. Right, the, these issues are, are frustrated or are angry right now. That somehow we're taking away their rights. You know, it, it's really simple. Right, as a parent out there, you know, you have one choice: you either love your child for who they are, or you will lose them. They will run away. They will have, um, you know, a strange relationship with you for the rest of their life, or they will take their own life. Right. And how you answer that question is up to you as the parent, right? That will dictate, you know, the quality of relationship you will have with your child for the rest of their life, long into adulthood. Because, you know, I know many people have come out and, uh, you know, our greatest fear is the rejection of our family, right? And family, parental rejection, family rejection is the number one cause of youth homelessness, right? We have a youth homelessness crisis and of of all the, the youth who are homeless, upwards of 40%, the research tells us, identify somewhere on the sexual and gender diverse spectrum. 
And that's because their families have failed to support them. And then next to your family, where do you go? You go to school, plays perhaps the next most important role in the lives of a young person. And if your school doesn't support you, well, what's left, right? It's too often the streets. And we know it is exponentially harder to get a kid off the street than to prevent them from being on the street in the first place. You know, and, and the the unfortunate reality here is, right, and, and people don't like to talk about this. We we have this sort of assumption that all parents, you know, are good parents and they they act in the best interests of their children all of the time. And and we absolutely hope that's the case. But, you know, let's just look at the, the, the cold, hard evidence. We have a billion dollar child welfare system in this province, right? That wouldn't exist if, right, if all parents were doing their job of caring and loving for their kids, right? And we know there are all kinds of factors and reasons, you know, behind that. But at the end of the day, right, it's about that unconditional love, right? Sometimes, you know, you don't, and I've heard this from, from parents of transgender children, right, who've said, you know, you know, you don't get to choose your children. And sometimes your children will take you to places you never thought you would go in your life, right? And that's the gift, right? That's the gift of authenticity, right? And that's the beauty of diversity, right? Is that we're not all the same. And that, you know, your children will lead you, they will teach you, they will guide you, right? With the love and support around you. And that's all we need at the end of the day. Nobody is taking anything away from parents or keeping secrets away from parents, right? If you want to know something about your child, just ask them, right? And if they trust you, they love you, and they respect you, they will share that information with you on their own time, right? And you have to be aware, right, of the language you use in the environment you create around you, because you can inadvertently be singling to this young person that you're not safe, right? I'll give you the, the, the classic example. There's an author who calls it five seconds of bigotry. You can say something to someone within this, the span of five seconds that will stay with them for the rest of their life, right? So mom and dad, uh, you know, son, daughter, dog, cat, the quintessential, right? Alberta family, um, are sitting around, you know, after dinner watching television, you know, and and uh, queer eye for the straight guy comes on, and and right, and and dad says, you know, look at those faggots, and turns the channel, right, because dad always has the remote. Um, so within that five seconds that it took for him to say that and turn the channel, you've just signaled to your child if they're questioning their sexual orientation or gender identity, you're not a safe person, right? Um, and so, right, that five seconds can last a lifetime, and that five seconds can produce a world of hurt for that young person who is now questioning the people I love and who care for me and provide for me may not love me or accept me, right? And that's what leads young people into despair, dis depression, turning to drugs and alcohol as negative coping mechanisms, cutting self-harm, you know, and, and suicide ideation. And, you know, I, I know yourself as a first responder, right? When you walk into a home and you see that, right? Your life is forever changed, no matter how many times you've seen that, right? That hope and that possibility in that young person, right? Who's no different than you or no different than me, 
right, is no longer there. It's no longer a part of us, a part of our community. That's the tragedy. And that's my worry here, right? We've heard it time and time again from people. These policies will not improve lives. They will cost lives. And when I met with Minister Fur and I asked her and she was uncomfortable and she was angry, if she said, I said, not, I'm asking you not as a minister, but as a human being, if you are prepared to stand behind these policies, knowing that a young person will take their life because of these policies, are you prepared to have that blood on your hands? Right? Because that's not something you can ever erase or something you can ever forget. You can think about all of the research or all of the, you know, the, the conversations or the noise around this, but at the end of the day, are you prepared to live with the, that cost, with that decision? You know, and if I met with Danielle Smith today, that's the exact thing I would ask her. Right? Because at the end of the day, there are lines that we have to draw, you know, and lines that we can't be prepared to cross, right? And sometimes, right, we put the politics first instead of the people. Dr. Wells, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, I want to thank you so much for for sharing your perspective and your knowledge and your lived experience. Um, and uh, I hope that we're able to follow up on this because we're absolutely going to be staying uh, on this right up until the the legislation either shows up in the legislature or it doesn't. I'll be here. We're not leaving. We're not going to be silent. We're not going away, right? We will resist and we will persist. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. It's great All chatting right. with you. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case maybe leave a, a review and a rating or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms we want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the breakdowns audience and as always take care of each other and keep the conversation going